Welcome to the Spiritual Boss Babe Podcast. If you're a woman who is ready to step into your power and manifest a life and business that sets your soul on fire, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Stephanie Bellinger, and I'm a mindset and success coach for spiritual entrepreneurs. I am obsessed with helping my fellow soul sisters shine their light and live out their purpose so they can experience more magic in everyday life. We all have a special purpose here and we're meant to share our message and gifts with the world. You deserve to be fully supported emotionally, spiritually, and financially from doing your soul's work. Together, we can make a massive impact in the world and it's time. So let's do this. In today's episode, I have the amazing Deanne Wandler Vukovic on the show with me. Deanne is an amazing speaker, transformation coach, spiritual activist, and survivor. She teaches others how to take care of their mind and body again by giving support, education, inspiration, leadership, and awareness to ensure that they nourish themselves fully. I'm really excited for you to dive into today's episode because September is Suicide Prevention Month and Deanne is such a powerful leader and teacher when it comes to helping others learn about mental health and supporting mental health in the workplace. In this episode, she talks about that as well as the dangers of chronic stress, how to deal with negative thought patterns and build resilience and so much more. Deanne has such a powerful, incredible story that she's going to share with you in here. And I'm excited for you to dive in because I know that you're going to get a lot out of this episode. When you listen, make sure that you tag me on Instagram at the spiritual boss babe and make sure you check out the show notes so that you can see where to connect with Deanne after this episode. So without further ado, let's welcome Deanne onto the show. Welcome to the show, Deanne. I'm so excited to have you here and super pumped to dive into all of the good stuff that we're going to be talking about. And I am really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure. So I want to open it up to really just get an idea of your story and what really led you to doing the powerful work that you're doing now with helping people with mental health and dealing with stress in the workplace. Like what led you to your purpose? I know that's a big question. Oh, it is a big, it it really (laughs) is. Um, And we could probably have a whole episode just on that and that alone. Um, But for me, uh, it really kind of um, came to fruition in September of 2016. It was on my 52nd birthday And I had been struggling with uh, what originated, first of all, it was long-term chronic stress that evolved into situational depression. Uh, Left untreated, it turned into major depressive disorder, and I was fully aware, um, but I kept thinking I could handle it. And during that, you know, three-year period of time that I kept thinking I've got a handle on this, I actually attempted to take my life on three separate occasions. Mm. The last one being the most violent on the evening of my 52nd birthday when I actually took a loaded gun and placed it under my chin and pulled the trigger. Wow. So, you know, the fact that I'm still here is uh, a testament to, you know, 
there's a divine plan and a, and a greater purpose for all of us. I absolutely believe that. Uh, really only 3% of the population who suffer a gunshot wound to the head survive. An even smaller percentage without some significant major facial uh you know, um, the word I'm looking for, disfigurement, um, or, you know, major neural damage and, or loss of the senses. And it was a very, very traumatic and difficult recovery. As a matter of fact, you'll still hear that I lisp a little bit, but it's taken, you know, a, a great deal of speech therapy and and being very cognizant and slow when I speak to try to minimize that. But I knew when I survived that, uh, when I was still in the hospital before I self-admitted to the psychiatric ward, my husband and I both vowed that we were not going to be embarrassed or ashamed of what happened. Mm. And instead, I think the, um, you know, this unusual life experience that I have, one of these few people to survive something so drastic, instead, I felt like it was a calling. And I felt like I was here to use my voice and my experience to raise awareness to this very serious um, issue and, uh, you know, encourage others who haven't yet found their voice. And, and if I can even change or just help one person, then this is worth it for me. Wow. That is really, really deep. Like really, really, I mean, powerful that you've been able to turn your life around from that experience and really use your vessel and your voice to empower other people and to serve other people in the way that you do. That is like really, really powerful. You know, it was a, a transformative experience, not only for myself, but those closest to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't, you know, if there's a way to leverage my story and my experience to help someone else find their voice or to seek the help that they need to not be embarrassed or ashamed, mm -hmm. um, that's what this is all about. We're, we're here to connect with yeah. one another. And I, I think that it's given me the opportunity to really reflect on how I lived my life before, mm -hmm. how present I was in my relationships how connected or not connected I was to family or to friends or, or to colleagues. Mm -hmm. And it really changes how you interact with other people. Yeah. What was the journey like um, after that, like building yourself back up and recovering and just really changing your life? Yeah, so physically, first and foremost, was excruciatingly painful. Mm. Um, I, I think the harder part was more the, the spiritual and, you know, your self-esteem. And uh, I, maybe not the spiritual. That's probably the wrong, the wrong word to use because spiritually, I actually think instead it did the reverse. 
it, it made me that much more connected to energy, mm. to other people, to, you know, a higher purpose. Um, but I think mentally is the part that was very challenging and even more challenging than the, the physical recovery. Mm. Uh, when I worked, and I'll give you an example, and it's really one of the reasons why workplace culture is so important to me. When I did return to work, and I returned to to the work to the employer whom I I was working for at the time that this had happened, mm. uh, the confidentiality had been breached, so the employees knew, um, at least a subset of the employees knew what had happened. And when I came back to work, it was very interesting to see that human dynamic. People are very uncomfortable with this topic. It it makes them very uneasy. Mm. And adapting back into the workplace to try to prove my value was very challenging, both for me and I think for those around me and and for my employer. HR, you know, the staff there tremendous very supportive but it was evident that there was some lack of training within a leadership area and it it was almost as though there was an undercurrent of can we give her a normal workload can she handle it is she competent Mm. do we have to worry that something's going to happen is she going to go crazy you know is she going to freak out at work um, all these things, because there's so much un, unknown about mental health mm-hmm. and, you know, people are uneducated that they automatically assume the worst. And, it, it, you know, the integration back into work was very difficult. And for the longest time, I kept it silent. And other than those who immediately knew, I did not... I didn't know how to come out with my story Mm. Um, and I had to learn how to do it in a way that was also safe. That wouldn't be a trigger for someone else. So I had so much to learn Mm -hmm. in the process. In addition to just kind of uh, overcoming my own self doubt and fear, uh, fear of retribution, fear of judgment. Mm hmm. And it finally, uh, it was about a year ago that I came out officially uh, with my story and and did it with my extended friends, um, many and most who who did not know anything. And um, what I have found professionally is not only does it affect me personally with my personal interactions, because some people feel very awkward around you professionally, it's been detrimental for me. With sharing your story. Yes. Um, I was uh, in my previous life. I was a vice president. I, I three different VP roles at universities. Mm. So when you hold an executive role like that, um, and then people find out that you had mental fatigue and that, you know, it resulted in a, uh, an attempt to take your life, and then you come out and you start sharing your story, 
the opportunities for leadership somehow are not as available. Mm. And legally, they can't do that. But it is still a fact of life. It happens. Wow. And so how, how do you go about like educating people and sharing your story now? Like what are some things that um, you help them understand or like when it comes to mental health? Yeah. So this is such a huge conversation. And I think, you know, we talked earlier that September is suicide awareness month. So I, I think the timing of this podcast is, is, ideal. I use my story in a way that I work with both individuals and in particular, I work with companies. Mm. So I I have kind of used my uh, traumatic experience as a vehicle for transformation, not only for myself, but hopefully for those around me. Mm -hmm. And I, as a public speaker, I've addressed audiences ranging anywhere from corporations to associations, universities, um, and and faith-based organizations. And I facilitate uh, workshops on uh, executive burnout, Mm. life work fulfillment, um, as well as emotional health and well-being trainings for for leadership teams. Wow. I think all of that is so important and so powerful that you've like been educating people in such a way and using your experience to really help people on both ends of the spectrum, people in the workplace who may not understand and those who may are maybe going through something similar of that burnout, of that de- of depression or whatever they're feeling. Yeah. And you know, I will say, I think that as a society, we're finally having the the conversation Mm -hmm. and and that's the beginning there. You know, there's been some very unfortunate tragedies with celebrities who have taken their life over the last couple of years that have been very, you know, very public. And then, you know, we've had professional athletes starting to come forward and talk about their experience and their struggle with mental health. And, and that really helps when you have people who are in an influential, you know, position to be able to come forward and break that ice, to have that initial conversation. And I think as we start looking then in the workplace, when we start getting executives coming forward and saying, look, I burned out. Mm-hmm. chronic stress and this is what happened with me and as employees start to feel safe in the workplace and we start to adapt our EAP programs to accommodate mental health um, support the conversation will become more prevalent and and only when we do that will we be able to start to eliminate or at least minimize the stigma associated with this mm-hmm what do you think are some really big contributing factors in the workplace when it comes to like leading to burnout and, and chronic stress? Yeah. So that's a really good question. I think that workplace culture is, 
first and foremost. And I think, you know, we all know that work is good for mental health, but a negative working environment can actually lead to physical and mental health problems. Mm. So if we look at what a, uh, what a healthy workplace means, I think the best way that I describe it at least is one where workers and managers actively contribute to the working environment by promoting um, and protecting health, safety, and this is the big one, well-being of all employees. Because, you know, health and safety, that's been in the workplace. That's why we have OSHA and all those other things, um, you know, in the workplace. But what we haven't really necessarily thought about before was the well-being in the workplace. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a lot of factors that go into a working environment. And I think that most risks probably relate to interactions between the the type of work, uh, the organizational, and this is a really big one, the managerial environment, Mm -hmm. the skills and competency of employees, and, and the support available for employees to, to carry out their work. So I think what I mean by that is a person may have the skills to complete tasks, mm-hmm. but they might not have enough resources available to them to do what is required. Or, you know, there may, may be unsupportive managerial or organizational practices. Mm. And what do you think, what can... What can workplace environments do to improve all of this? I'm sure there's like a lot of things. Um, I think we're almost in information overwhelm right now. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think with so much information now being available and so many support services to draw on, it can really be overwhelming for employers to know how best to approach building and maintaining a mentally healthy workplace. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, that's where it's really important for employees to essentially just take a step back and take the time to adopt a strategic rather than an ad hoc approach, mm-hmm. which unfortunately a lot of ad hoc approaches is what starts to cause stress in the workplace. So when um, developing strategies about mental health in the workplace, it's important that employers don't just focus on what poor mental health looks like. And sometimes we have a a habit of doing that. We focus on the problem instead of the solution. Mm -hmm. Um, It's equally important to focus on what good mental health looks like and to consider how to protect and promote that good mental health well in the future. So one of the things that I share with my employer audience is that the best place to start uh, creating mentally healthy workplaces is simply by being curious. Mm. And I know that sounds simplistic, but it's important to find out what's going on and how work tasks and processes are impacting the health of employees. Mm. Existing data such as um, reported hazards, claims data, or this is a really big one, the results of employee engagement or culture surveys are super places to start. Mm, I like the idea of surveys and kind of getting feedback from everyone in the workplace. 
Yeah, so I think on that note, the other thing that I like to stress is qualitative research, just like you said, actually having those interactions with employees. So, you know, having that qualitative research through interviews or focus groups with the employees is also important to get a deeper understanding of what's working and what's not. And the goal is to undertake a, a situational analysis of risk factors in their own workplace that may contribute to promoting poor mental health and help them with their approach to developing a tailored, a real tailored, not ad hoc strategy to address these. It's really about setting a vision Mm -hmm. and, and targets and starting with what is most impactful. And it needs to be done in a consultative and collaborative way and be backed up. Really, this is the other thing that's so important is be backed by leadership support. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So for for people like in a workplace that may feel like they're stressed out or they like hate going to work or they're just not feeling super supported, what do you recommend? Like, are you, I mean, I don't know. You're the only person I've met that does something like this as far as like speaking on this topic, especially in the workplace. So what would you say to people, I guess, maybe who are in an environment that really doesn't support them and is kind of stressful to them, like how they can support themselves? I mean, if, if getting another job doesn't feel like an option for them. I hope that makes sense. Yes, no, it makes perfect sense. And, and I think it's a, a very relevant question because recent statistics, um, state that 83% of U.S. workers say they are stressed at work. And um, over a million employees miss work each day because of stress. Wow. Yes, so it's not just, you know, the employees, the employer is suffering due to lack of presenteeism and productivity. Mm. In fact, I think, oh, and I'm trying to remember what the, the other statistic was, because it was, it was really quite shocking. I, I believe the estimated cost of depression and anxiety right now to the global economy is a trillion dollars per year in lost productivity. Wow. So, you know, if you have, you know, we, a whole nother part of the conversation would be how to break down the stigma and change the workplace culture. But for an employee who finds themselves in that situation, first and foremost, they need to go to HR. Um, also utilize their employee, their EAP program, um, employee assistance program. Mm. Most every single employer has an EAP program and I would say probably at least 70 to 75% of EAP programs contain some type of mental health component. Mm. Now, most employers, or a good portion of employers, I shouldn't say most, many employers do not do a very good job in promoting awareness 
about the EAP program. They essentially just have it on their employee internet saying, hey, we have this available to you, but they don't really divulge what is available and how to access it as much as they should. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I got to tell you, Stephanie, I don't know. I, I, I think that part of it is there's so much that the human resource personnel are tasked with doing that certain things are probably more like a checkbox. Yes, we have the EAP program. Yes, it's posted on the internet. Yes, the employees are aware we have it. Mm. I've done my job. But when we look at the statistics that I was just kind of, some of the statistics that I was sharing with you, it should be a priority. (laughs) It is. It's evident that we're not doing as good of a job as we could be. Mm. And interestingly enough, it is one of the hottest trends right now for 2019 and 2020 is um, mental health in the workplace. And, And how can we do a better job at supporting that? So first for the employee who might be experiencing that, really research and find out what your EAP program offers because there's traditionally no cost for an employee to utilize that service. And it is confidential. Mm. Well, that's good to know. Yes. And then the other part is if it's because there's managerial issues, that needs to be addressed. That can't be handled by EAP. The EAP program is a confidential resource available for that employee to seek assistance for their own mental health and well-being. Mm-hmm. But it won't have any impact on the workplace culture or their particular situation. So if it's being triggered by something internal to the organization, the employee really does need to look at being able to have a conversation with their employer, whether that's their direct supervisor or whether it means going to HR because perhaps it is, in fact, the stress is being caused by their supervisor. Mm. Uh, And then lastly, for an employee, a lot of companies also have a 1-800 confidential hotline where they can report issues. Wow. And um, those are your bigger organizations, your smaller, you know, mom and pop businesses don't offer that. But for those that are in, you know, uh, working, employed at a, a large corporation, they traditionally always have an 800 number. So if there's something happening that the employee feels that uncomfortable about, and unable to potentially address it with their direct supervisor or go to HR. And usually this is more of what you think of when you think of whistleblower, because mm-hmm. there's something potentially illegal happening um, or harassment or something of that nature, bullying, uh, utilize that 800 number to report. And there is, that is traditionally operated by a 33rd party company who will work with the employer in trying to investigate and resolve. Wow. So crazy. Didn't know any of this stuff existed. It's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, So 
what do you, you said that 2019 to 2020, this is going to be a big thing of like mental health in the workplace. Can you share more about what that means or looks like? Sure. I think what, what we're, what we're finding the trend is um, raising awareness that they need to bring down the stigma um, at work because the reality is we spend a great deal of time at work. Mm-hmm. And with as much time as we spend at work, for many, many of us, that's more time than we even spend with our own family. So because of that, it's important that we start having that essential discussion in the workplace. But in order to do that, we have to break down the stigmas. So that's all about creating awareness, encouraging acceptance, and really challenging some of the false beliefs that are out there. And unfortunately, when it does come to mental health, there are a lot of false beliefs. And it starts with breaking the silence around mental illness Mm -hmm. uh, and education about things like uh, understanding. We talked about the mental health benefits that are offered and knowing how to access them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's an easy win. That's a slam dunk. Employers can do that easily. Highlighting the support and resources available through those employee assistance programs, the EAPs. Um, having proactive manager support for those who are open about living with a mental health condition. And um, I'll give you an example. I don't think that an employee should be frowned upon for calling in and saying, I need to take a mental health day. Mm. But people don't. They have to call in and lie and say, I'm sick in order to take that time off. When in fact, that's just part of breaking down that workplace culture and and making it more open and inclusive and breaking down stigma by just saying, you know what, I need a mental health day. I'm really stressed and I, I need to take the day off for that. Mm-hmm. So that's something that I think we may start to see more of in 2020. Um, awareness of language used throughout the organization and avoiding negative terms when talking about mental illness is huge. Mm-hmm. And, I, and we did talk about this a little, recognizing that mental health and physical health are equally important. And mental health c- conditions are common and treatable, just like most physical health conditions are. Mm-hmm. And I think as a manager, it's also important to recognize the signs of emotional distress and what to do when team members may be struggling. Mm, what are some common signs? Uh, well, very often you'll start to see them missing a lot of work. Mm. Uh, we will see um, a lack of presenteeism, meaning their productivity is decreasing. They're there, but they're checked out. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're paying dollars for time instead of for actual results. Mm-hmm. Um, very often you will see them also getting very reactive. So uh, policy changes um, in meetings. If something isn't, you know, going the way that they think it should, or if it's a very fast transactional change within the, the organization instead of, you know, with a good communication plan, if 
an individual is highly stressed already and has anxiety, they will be more reactive to the situation than most other employees who would be able to just roll with it because they have, you know, greater resilience. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing to look at is, are they getting their work done? If they have too much work on their plates, then they're not going to get everything done. So it's being important to watching things like that with your employees. And that requires managers to actually connect with their employees. Like real human beings. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. And not just freaking employees. <laughs> I haven't, I haven't worked at like a normal job in like a very, very, very long time, but I've had some experiences way back in the day where it was just like the people in charge were just, well, at a couple places I worked at, not all of them were just like so nasty to the employees. And like, it was like, oh, am I even a person? Yes. Yes. And I will, I will share with you, um, Stephanie, that, you know, being in the roles, executive roles that I was in before, in retrospect now, looking back at how I even led, there are there were opportunities for improvement. And I see that now because I had over 160 employees reporting to me and I had managers and directors. And so my communication with the the direct line employee was not as frequent as it should have been. Mm. And I felt like, you know, a pinball in a way, going from meeting to meeting to meeting. I think we were going to have a meeting to talk about our next meeting. (laughs) And what happens in an environment like that is you get so focused on tasks and you become so far removed from the actual people that you're serving because you're not just serving your clients or your customers, you're serving your employees. Mm. And it is so easy to forget that. And so that interpersonal connection was lacking. And in retrospect, I realized that, you know, there were so many things that I could have done better that would have made me an even better leader. Mm. I had all the, you know, all the, the checkpoints for the job. I was doing a great job meeting metrics, you know, KPIs. We were performing. I, I was able to provide reports. I was a workaholic. I was always there. So all these other things checked the block. But in having a real connection with those 160 employees, that was an epic fail. Mm. That's a lot on, that was a lot on your plate, I'm sure, too. I mean, in general. Sure. I mean, and we can look at that. And, you know, I was a single mom of three kids and, you know, I went through Hurricane Katrina and we were rebuilding the organization and having to restaff. There were all kinds of things that led to that stress. Mm. You know, some of the, what I referenced earlier about the chronic stress, but the reality is everyone is coming to work with a story. Mm Mm-hmm. Everyone has a different story and we have no idea what their story is. Or what they're going through. Exactly. So until we become more in tune with our employees and more of that servant leader, 
where we want to get to know them. We want to have a, a life work balance for them. We value them. We value their contributions and their feedback until we can really kind of be a little more forward thinking as, as companies, as employers and, and make those trans make that transition we're not fostering the best in our employees and we're also not leading them the best way that we can. Mm. So it's like a combination of leadership skills too. Absolutely. Cause I, like, like we said, everyone has a story, but when you come to work, you have to remember you're there still in a capacity to help, help other people succeed in order to help the company succeed. Mm. So true. So for, for people like, um, dealing with the stress or like negative thought patterns that come up or whatever, while they're at work, like what are some things that they can do to support their well-being? Yes. So, you know, there are some short-term and and long-term strategies that I like to really focus on um, because I think inside each and every single one of us lives in inner critic. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I know that all too well. (laughs) I call this our cerebral party crasher. (laughs) And, and it's hard to shake, but we can learn how to manage it with practice. So if we just kind of talk about short term first, um, one of the one of the answers is, and we're hearing this more and more, is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, oh, what is that? It's a trendy word, but what really is it? So I think the best way to describe it, it's a it's a non judgmental present moment awareness, which helps manage and reduce the occurrence of intrusive thoughts. So let's kind of think about that as an example. We're women. Um, I now have a facial scar. Um, And when I'm out in public and I see a pretty woman, a beautiful woman, my first thought, well, my second thought, because my first thought is, oh, she's beautiful. Look how lovely she is. Mm. And my second thought then, the intrusive thought, becomes that inner critic of, oh, you're not as attractive anymore. You have this very visual facial scar as a result of, and it's so easy to start following that down the rabbit trail then of everything else that is wrong with you. Mm. So with mindfulness, the intent or the purpose is to acknowledge, oh, yes, she is beautiful. Yes, I do have a scar on my face, but that does not mean I'm not beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it sounds kind of simplistic and maybe even hokey for some people. But I will share with you that when you have that, that opportunity to just be aware in that moment and not it really has a very profound effect on how you process things. Mm-hmm. So uh, the goal is not to suppress or repress these unwanted thoughts as they arise because they're going to, mm-hmm. but instead accept their place in your mind and make no effort to control, analyze, or change them. You're just kind of 
creating essentially a space for cognitive restructuring. Mm, so like kind of like be the observer, like yes. let, let them pass, but don't take them on as your actual identity. I couldn't have said it better, Stephanie. That's perfect. Yeah. And that takes practice for sure. It's not easy. No, it is not easy at all. It does take a lot of practice. Um, the other, I'm also really fond of meditation. Mm-hmm. Same. Here. And yes, good. Well, I would think so. You're a whole bus, babe. So I know you've got to be into that. Mm-hmm. And then self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say one one other short term that I am especially fond of. It's a, it's a basic breathing technique and it's known as the long hail exhale. Well, let me repeat that long exhale mm-hmm. <laughs> pranayama breath. And I think it's actually one of the best stress, stress hacks that are out there. And it's so simple. Wow. It's ba- yeah. It's basically, and if you've done any yoga or meditation, you you're probably already even familiar with this one yourself, Stephanie. It's basically where you slowly increase your long exhales. So it's not right away. You slowly do this. Increase your long exhales to where 80% of your breath is the exhale. Mm. And it's called the vagal break because it stimulates the vagus nerve. So when you exhale slowly like that, you're activating your relaxation response to your parasympathetic nervous system. Wow. So it's, it's a way to essentially interrupt that pattern. You're using distraction as a tool set. Mm. So I would say that that's, you know, my two most favorite is the mindfulness and then the breath because I'm acknowledging it. If it's something that's stressful and I'm having a hard time as I'm starting to practice that mindfulness space, then I go into the pranayama breath. Mm. And it just does this. It's stimulating that vagus nerve. It really is acting as a distraction and you're relaxing. How long do you do the breathing technique for usually when you do it? Um, I would say no more than five minutes, three to five minutes. Super short, super fast and easy. Yep, yep. But then, you know, there's long-term and, and long-term is going to, to be a, a, it's more work. It does kind of go hand in hand with mindfulness, but the long-term goal is ultimately to break the cycle of stress reactivity and rewire your brain altogether. Mm-hmm. So um, medical research now increasingly points to the fact that thinking and consciously creating your th- your thought life is one of the best ways, if not the best way of rewiring your brain. And um, it used to be that they thought our brains were fixed. So, you know, once we pass through childhood, early childhood, three or four years old, it used to be believed that our minds were fixed. They weren't malleable, that they didn't have the ability to change and grow. But that's not true. Um, more recently, and I would say not, it's probably been more about the, the last three to five years in particular that this has really been 
had a great deal of research and it has been made very public through through research, white papers, books, and now, of course, webinars, but about neuroplasticity. Mm. So what we've learned now is that the brain is, in fact, malleable and adaptable, changing moment by moment of every day by how we actually direct our thinking. Mm-hmm. And that kind of goes back to that mindfulness. So the great thing, that means that we have the capacity to change and grow our our, our brains by creating new neural pathways throughout our life. Mm-hmm. You know, add to the fact that every morning when you wake up, we all have new baby nerve cells that have been born while we were sleeping that are there at our disposal to be used in tearing down some of our toxic thoughts and rebuilding healthy ones. But Going back to that mindfulness and long-term strategy, that means you really have to learn, and this is challenging, you have to learn to engage interactively with every single thought that you have, Mm -hmm. to analyze it before you decide to either accept it or reject it. So the mindfulness, as you said, you're not judging it, Mm -hmm. you're the observer, but when you're actually changing thought, pro- thought patterns for long term, you actually acknowledge it and you decide whether you want to accept it or reject it. And that's, then through, go ahead. I was going to say that's just, that's a very empowering way to look at it too, because it's like we're taking our power back and saying, okay, I'm going to not accept this thought because it's not serving me. It's not aligned with what I'm stepping into. Wow. You are so right. And and I got to where I was, Stephanie, where, where I, you know, tried to take my life in the manner I did because my thought process had become so skewed. Mm. All of that negative thinking over an extended amount of time, that chronic stress had created such deep neural pathways mm. that I could not see an alternative outside of that thought pattern. Yeah. And so it does take uh, active engagement and you're right, taking back your power to decide whether you want to accept it or reject it and, and gain more control of your thoughts and feelings. And, and this is the really cool part, because when you do that, when you take back your power and you consciously accept it or reject it and gain control, you can effectively change the programming and the chemistry of your brain. Totally. This is all I'm, I nerd out on all the time. <laughs> I am so fascinated by it. It really is amazing. Do you study Joe, Dis- Joe Dispenza's work? I guess. Yes. He's like one of my favorites. Yes. So I have his book, You Are the Placebo, Mm -hmm. and then Becoming Supernatural. Becoming Supernatural. I'm already listening to it for like the third time. I (laughs) love his shit. I can't wait to go to an event. So if you like his work, I might also recommend, are you familiar with Dr. Carolyn Leaf? I don't believe so, but I'm going to write that down. Yeah, Leaf. L-E-A-F. Sweet. And she has a book. Well, she has two books out, but I think the intro book um, is Switch On Your Brain. Mm. 
And it, it's a, she actually has a five-step brain learning process that she goes into great detail on how you have the, what we just talked about, how to do that, how you can form new neural pathways, break that, you know, chronic negative thinking pattern. Mm. So she actually gives you the step-by-step on how you can do that. That's so awesome. Thanks for sharing that book. I will definitely check it out. I think all of this is so fascinating. And, you know, I do have a question, like, I want to hear your take on this because some, you know, I think it's important to um, do that inner child healing work and like uh, listen to certain parts of ourself that might be wanting attention. Um, So like we were just talking about how you can accept or reject a belief what is your take on like um, doing that in a way that you're also being compassionate towards yourself and not being like, oh, you know, you know, pissed off at yourself for thinking a negative thought or being negative or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and that funny enough goes right back to that mindfulness, acknowledging that you have that thought, but not yeah. judging yourself for it. Yeah. And, you know, you're right. There is a... a it's like it's a, a balance. It it is, and it it's a, it should be a childlike exploration. Yeah, like reparenting yourself, basically. Uh, essentially, yes. I, I mean, because you are you're you're, te- you're you are reteaching yourself better behavior. Because we learn, and it just is a, a it's a fact of life as we grow, and as if we have a lot of stress or a lot of work life situations that happen. We don't necessarily always handle things the best if it's been long-term and ongoing. Mm. And and then what happens is these become patterns for us. So it's when you do make that conscious decision, it's important to go back through that process. Like you said, child exploration without judgment, acknowledging what you're doing, but not, you know, thinking that you're a real idiot or, oh, I must be dumb for thinking this or what's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And instead just acknowledging, yeah, you know what, it's there, but I can change this. Yeah. I don't know. Did that answer that? No, it does. It does. It's like um, acknowledging it and not judging it and like just... um, just reteaching yourself. I like how you explained it. I think it's important to, um, to be able to do that in a way where it's like, you're not, uh, giving into that inner critic voice or the whatever disempowering thoughts. And at the same time, you're not like beating yourself up about it because that just basically is the same cycle of like technically self hate or whatever, you know? Yes. And And I've been there. Yep. And I will say one of the steps that she also recommends, and and I have found this to be very helpful for me, is uh, she says um, that your brain writes through genetic expression. And that makes sense. So when you write things down, you're actually mirroring that process. So when you pour out your thoughts, it helps to add clarity to what you've been thinking Mm. And it really helps you see the area that needs to be rewired because I think what's so 
powerful about it is that it allows you to see both the non-conscious and the conscious thoughts in a visual way. Yeah. That makes sense. I'm excited to check out that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a very interesting self-reflective process. Mm, I feel like we went so many different directions in this interview. It's been freaking amazing. <laughs> well, I think that as science has progressed, we're learning just how amazing the brain is mm-hmm. and how much power we have in influencing our circumstances and our reality. Mm-hmm. So much. Like we can create anything that we desire. I absolutely believe that. And in order to have healthy thoughts, um, in order for them to become automatized like a good habit, sometimes, specifically when we're talking about mental health, sometimes you also need to have the medication and the therapy that accompanies it. And in my case, in order to get to this place of self-reflection where I'm able to look at things differently, where I'm able to be highly engaged in reprogramming my brain and being able to create my reality in which I live in, first I needed to have some of the medication to help with the chemical imbalance that was taking place in my mind, in my brain. I was also perimenopausal at the time, which also has a very big impact on the chemistry makeup of a woman. That was first and foremost, coupled with therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, Mm -hmm. allowed me, you know, that jumpstart of what I needed, first of all, to, to stimulate and regulate my chemical balance so that I could start to think clearly. And once I was able to then start thinking clearly, then I was able to transition into what you have already talked about, you know, this, this realm of creating our, our reality through the science of thought and intention. Yeah. I've done, uh, I started, uh, well, I've done a lot of therapy as well, um, just healing from things that I've been through. And I don't know what kind of cogn- cognitive therapy you've done, but EMDR was so life-changing for me. I have not done that yet, but I have amazing. heard amazing things about it. And that's the ID sensitive desensitization, right? Yep. The rapid eye movement. Yeah. For PTSD and, and and just, I mean, anyone can really benefit from it. It's really transformative and fast too. Interesting. So you're like the third person to mention this to me Uh fairly recently. Yes. I'm going to have to check it out because I have heard some pretty cool things about it. Yeah. It was really, really powerful. Um, so that, like I started with that and then I went into uh, hypnosis and then I was led to working with psychedelics and, um, you know, all three of those things are things that I always share about and still talk about to this day because they've really helped me rewire my brain and, and heal from trauma. Mm. I should share with you, maybe when we get off of this podcast, there is a gentleman who has just recently started a nonprofit and he works with veterans dealing with PTSD. 
and it includes a, a trip abroad and educating them on psychedelics. So it's very forward thinking. I'm so passionate about psychedelics, like <laughs> just sharing about the the power they have to heal and to and to expand. That's interesting. I would definitely love to have a conversation with you about that. Yeah, definitely. I'm down. Yeah, for me, I think, you know, after I went through the, the, the therapy, and I will say the first therapist, I, I did not really gain any value out of that. Uh, for some reason, we just didn't connect, and I was going to discontinue therapy. But in order to keep my meds, <laughs> They said, you have to see someone. So um, I I got hooked up with another therapist and she was just, she was amazing. And she wasn't just a therapist. I mean, she was very much into the metaphysical, mm-hmm. yoga, shaman. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, oh my goodness, I've actually found someone who can help me cognitively kind of jumpstart how I need to really be thinking about things and my perspective, but it was also someone who I could connect with because we had similar interests. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I went in and, and became certified in mindfulness and in meditation. And I'm writing a course right now, in fact, on trauma-informed mindfulness. Wow. And I'm near completion of my yoga teacher training. Wow, you really dove in. I love I it. I did. I did. And and you and I are both obviously so hooked on the um, neuroscience aspect. Mm-hmm. I even went to the Neuro Leadership Institute and became a certified brain-based coach, which is specifically dealing with how the brain thinks. Wow. What and was that called again? It's called Brain-Based Coach, and it's through the Neuro Leadership Institute. Wow, I'm going to totally look into that. <laughs> it's, it's a really great program. It is a complete different take on coaching than coaching has been in the past because it's taking all this new science now and applying it to a coaching conversation and how to direct that conversation in a way that is going to have maximum impact is that for the coaching. Is that like similar in any way to NLP? Because I'm a NLP practitioner and I'm like really delving even deeper into that. And it kind of like is the brain-based like, you know, neuro, neuro-linguistics. I don't know if it's, any, if it's similar or something. Interesting. There is some crossover because with NLP neuro-linguistic programming, you're right. That is about choice of words as well. And you, you obviously know more about NLP than I do. Um, but I, with the, the brain-based coaching, it's not just about the linguistics, the, the verbiage that you're using, but also how to direct the conversation or redirect the conversation keep them more solution focused instead of problem focused mm-hmm. and then how to move towards accountability and actions. So mm-hmm. it's taking a, it's a really amped up coaching program that is all based on neuroscience. So given your interest, Stephanie, what, you know, some of the things that you already have expressed, I, it might be something that you would really be interested in, in exploring. 
Oh yeah. I'm like a lifelong learner. I just got to pace myself because (laughs) when I get excited about stuff, I like dive into so many things. (laughs) Two peas in a pod. Yes, I get it. Yeah. Cause it's like for, you know, for my own growth and understanding and, and to better serve my clients, it's just like, you know, I feel like we're always, we always should be growing, you know, and learning and adding to our skill set, whatever interests us. That's true. And being a lifelong learner also keeps your brain younger. True. And probably my <laughs> physical looks younger. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Well, with the energetic modality part, yes, you're probably yeah. right. <laughs> well, this was amazing, Deanne. Like, I feel like we covered so many things, and and I encourage anyone listening definitely connect with Deanne after this. And I want to let you share any last like words of whatever you would like to share, and where people can find you um, after this. Yeah, sure. So. Um, Closing thoughts. Um, I think it's important for people to learn how to free themselves from the past by reconditioning the mind and moving beyond the limits of the known and into the quantum fields of infinite possibilities in order to lead an extraordinarily new life. And it's possible. And even if there is, and, and that's for general audience, that's for everyone. If it's someone who is struggling with a a mental health challenge, um, be it anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, um, I am a testament that you can move beyond this, but you can't do it alone. Mm. It is so important that you seek help. It's important to have that conversation because once you're able to go through and get that help you need, then you're able to trans, uh, transition to that next phase of what we talked about, reconditioning the mind and into the quantum fields of mm-hmm. infinite possibilities. But you have to move beyond that platform first because that does not define you. And for anyone who might be interested in connecting with me, uh, there's two ways. There's my website, which is dnwandler.com. And then I am getting ready to launch an online university, considering I come from higher education. This seems like the next perfect, you know, step for me. And that you can find that at livewelluniversity.org. Love that. And I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Live Well University. Um, So whoever's listening, you guys can check out the links in the show notes as well to connect with Deanne there. Sounds great. Yeah. And thank you so much. Like this has been so amazing and it's so inspiring hearing your story and empowering with all the information that you shared. I feel like this was like a wealth of information and, and inspiration. So thank you so much. Well, Stephanie, thank you for what you do because I think, you know, the, the content that you bring to your listeners is, is important it's empowering content and it helps people find ways to, you know, reclaim their power and, and lead that extraordinarily light, extraordinary life that we all deserve. Oh, thank you. 
Well, this was amazing. I hope you have an awesome day. And whoever's listening, make sure you hit us up on Instagram, tag us when you listen and come say hi. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you loved what you heard, please be sure to leave a review on iTunes and hit the subscribe button. If you want extra motivation to manifest a life and business that you're obsessed with, then find me on Instagram at the spiritual boss babe or visit spiritualbossbabe.com. I love you and appreciate you so, so much. And I'll see you in the next episode. I hope you have a magical day. Oh,